You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Every week or every year in November for three weeks, we devote uh, sustained reflection on generosity. Uh, This is a period of time for us to reflect on God's generosity to us, especially, Uh, but it's also a time for us to reflect on his calling for us to embody that aspect of his character, his generosity. So for the next three weeks, this is what we'll do. Just to give you an idea of what that's going to look like, uh, the approach this year is to think about generosity in terms of the three words that really define the structure and process of our mission. You know those three words as worship, connect, and serve. Worship is what we're doing right now, Sunday mornings, beginning of the week. We start our week together worshiping the living God, who is our creator and our redeemer, the triune God. Connect describes our group ministries, whether it's Sunday school or adult education groups, or you've heard me talk about our band meetings that we are launching now, even smaller groups that are really aimed at transformation of our lives so that we can increasingly embody the character of God to one another, to our neighbors, and to the nations. So we'll spend next week reflecting on how generosity is cultivated in those sorts of groups. And then the third Sunday, we'll turn our minds to the third word, serve. We'll reflect on how God has called us to serve one another. You'll have an opportunity to make a commitment to serve the church and the world, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in a new way in the year to come, and you'll also have an opportunity to make a commitment to serve the church, to serve the mission of the church, the Lord Jesus, through your giving in 2021. So that's what the next three weeks look like. Uh, If you've been around for a few years, you kind of know the rhythm, you kind of know what it feels like. Uh, And so that's where we are today. We start our reflections with Psalm 115. And you may be thinking, you know, this is supposed to be one of those money sermons. I really don't like it when the preacher talks about money. It's very uncomfortable. I've seen those guys on TV with the flashy suits and the big flashy smiles. And whenever they start talking about money, it gets very, it feels very manipulative. It's very uncomfortable. And, you know, I usually try to skip these Sundays when we get here in church, and maybe why didn't they tell me about this ahead of time, and those kinds of things. What I want us to reflect on and see as we think about Psalm 115, which actually doesn't mention money at all, does it? But what it does do is it helps us to see that generosity isn't just one section of our lives over here. That it is inherent in the worship life of the people of God. Every year when we spend time talking about generosity. That's why we've, we've shifted the language away from stewardship to generosity, if you've noticed, the last few years. Because generosity isn't simply... Stewardship is just is a good word. I don't want to criticize the word. But it's very much focused on like, what do I do for God? And that's an important question. And we're going to talk about those kind of questions. But we want to locate those questions in a larger context of generosity. See, generosity isn't just what do I do, it's who is God. There's a different question there. 
And all the way through the Scriptures, and we're going to see this again and again and again, God presents Himself and reveals Himself and makes Himself known, whether it's His work as the Creator in Genesis, or the Redeemer in Jesus, or His continuing presence in the Spirit. All through, cover to cover, page after page, God presents Himself as a generous God. The posture He takes toward His people is defined by generosity. And that is not separate from the worship life of the people of God. In fact, the way we worship God or not is going to either form us as increasingly generous people or deform us as increasingly greedy people. The thing that comes to the surface in Psalm 115 when we settle in and just allow it to speak to us and allow the Spirit to speak to us through these words, the thing that comes to the surface again and again and again is that we cultivate generous lives by worshiping the only generous God. We cultivate generous lives by worshiping the only generous God. Now that central truth that central reality comes to the surface in this text by, by means of a really stark contrast. You may have picked it up when I was reading a moment ago. The psalmist contrasts, right? Contrast is when you have two things and they're not the same. They are very different. One is like this and one is starkly and distinctly different. The contrast in Psalm 115 is the power of the Creator God, the power of the Covenant God, the power of the Triune God, the power of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who reveals Himself in Jesus and the Spirit. He, we are told in verse 3, does whatever He pleases. This is a helpful reminder because sometimes when we talk about the, uh, the power of God, right, in contrast here to the impotence of idols, their powerlessness. Sometimes when we talk about the power of God, we get into kind of silly things. And people say, well, if God's powerful, why can't can He make a rock that's so big He can't pick it up? You ever think about that? If God's all-powerful, can He make a square circle? Right? But, but what the psalmist tells us is that God is powerful. And when we talk about His all-powerfulness, it means that He does whatever is consistent with His character. When we talk about the power of God, He is able to do all things, and he, he has no interest in doing anything that's inconsistent with His character. He does whatever He pleases. And what is His pleasure? What is His character? What is He like? In the opening verses of Psalm 115, we are told about His steadfast love and His faithfulness. We're going to come back to that and keep reflecting on it. But again, here's the contrast. He is Faithful, he is overflowing in perfect love, and he does whatever he wants, whatever is consistent with his character. The idols, on the other hand, are entirely powerless. And this is something that it shows up. This is just one text that has these same themes. But one of the common ways that the Hebrew scriptures, the Israelite, the Old Testament, the Israelite scriptures, kind of one of the ways they like to go after the idols of the surrounding nations and the idols that they sometimes embrace 
is by showing how they have organs, like ears and eyes and mouths, but those organs don't actually function properly, or at all. Right? And so, he says, you know, you, you, you have an idol, it's made out of silver and gold, and you can kind of imagine somebody in the ancient world setting down and, and, and maybe taking a piece of wood and carving it up and overlaying it with, 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 with gold or silver, or maybe putting some precious stones or gems on it, maybe putting it in a shrine in their house. And, and it probably looks like, like a created thing, right? Because the Creator has not revealed Himself in, in bodily images or in creaturely images in this place, in this time. We don't get any kind of image of God until we get Jesus. At this point, God has said, don't make image, like I haven't shown you an image. I've spoken to you, I've called you, I've related to you, but don't go and think that you can make a little statue and that that's going to represent me. Don't think you can do that. But that's what they try to do sometimes. They make little statues and they represent. So they've got eyes and they've got ears and they look like, you know, a person or maybe some sort of animal or maybe some weird combination of the two. But the eyes don't work, do they? You know, if you fashion an idol out of a piece of wood and put a little gold over the top of it and make some nice little eyes, maybe with some precious stones... They can't really see anything. You might carve ears on the side of the head, but when you pray to it, it doesn't actually hear you, does it? It may have hands, the statue, the idol, but they're not able to do anything. They just sit there powerless. There's no life in them. And that's the thing that comes through again and again and again in this psalm. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God who will reveal Himself in Christ and the Spirit, this God is able to do whatever He pleases. But the idols of the nations and the idols that sometimes work their way into the people of God, because yes, we as the people of God are indeed prone to idolatry, whether we like it or not. Those things are powerless. They have no effective power. The question then becomes, you know, which, why, like, why do we run to things that are impotent, that are unable to save us, that have hands but don't feel, that have feet but don't walk, that make no sound in their throats, in contrast to the God of Abraham who speaks and makes promises and calls a people for himself, who shows up on Sinai and speaks to Moses and gives the ten words and makes a covenant and gives a vocation and a calling and says, I want to be your God, I want you to be my people. The idols have no capabilities or power to do any of those things. They cannot issue a calling. They cannot say, I want you to belong to me. They cannot say, I'm going to put my unfailing love on you because their organs are lifeless. There's no life in them. The organs don't work. And this is really the folly of idolatry, isn't it? Idolatry is about trust and worship, but it's about trust and worship in things that have no power to save us. It's not, though, that they don't have any effect on us. I don't know if you caught it as I was reading through this a moment ago, but verse 8 is stunning, 
and scary. After the psalmist goes through the powerlessness of the idols, they have hands and mouths, but they don't speak, they can't act, they have eyes, but they can't see, ears, but they cannot hear, noses, but they do not smell, feet, but they do not walk, they make no sound in their throats. And in verse 8, he says this, those who make them are like them. And so are all who trust in them. Wait a second. What is going on there? You've got these, there's a comparison. There's something like people who make idols or trust them are similar in somehow to the idol itself. And what, what is he saying about the idol? They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They've got organs, but the organs don't function properly. And the psalmist wants us to help and wants us to see that, you, that, that there's this, this central, this deep truth here that we become like what we worship. Like whatever it is that we give our worship to, whatever it is we put our trust in, whatever it is we give our energy to, the characteristics of that thing are reproduced in us. Right? And so the psalmist is saying, look, if you want to make an idol and worship it, it has a mouth, but it can't speak. It has eyes, but it can't he- see. It has ears, but it can't hear. It is, its organs do not function properly. They are inept. And the thing that's going to happen to those who worship idols instead of the living God is that their spiritual sensibilities are going to cease to function properly. First time that that became clear to me, it was one of those eye-opening wow moments. Right? Because, remember we're dealing with worship here. Because if we become like what we worship is true, then first it's true that worshiping ineffective, powerless things deforms us spiritually. But the converse is true too. Worshiping the living, true God forms us spiritually. We become like what we worship. So we will either every moment of every day be giving our trust and our energy to something other than God or to God. I'm either going to be trusting in myself and and the work of my... That's really what idolatry is about, isn't it? They fashion it with their own hands. And we may be thinking, you know, he's talking about these idols, but I don't have any of those in my house. You know, I don't have any like little Buddha statues or any weird things like that, you know. But the issue isn't the thing. The issue is I made this with my hands and I trust it. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Verse 8, so are all who trust them. Idolatry isn't primarily about statues, it's about false worship. So if I construct anything in which I trust that is not the triune God who raised Jesus from the dead, I'm I'm slipping into false worship. Slipping into idolatry. And that's not without consequence, is it? It's not simply that God's just mad or something because worshiping idols and 
you know, I'm going to wrath and fear. Like, that's not the issue here. God cares deeply about our worship because He knows if we worship things that are powerless, it will deform our spirituality. If we worship the work of our own hand instead of the work of His hand, it will deform our spirituality. If we put our trust in the work of our own hands instead of trusting His all-powerful hand, it will deform our spirituality. We become like what we worship. For our good or for our detriment. Our spiritual senses will be dulled. Our spiritual organs will stop working. It will become increasingly difficult. The longer we give ourselves to the things that we construct and put our trust in those things, the longer and the deeper we give ourselves to those things, the harder it will be to hear the voice of God, the harder it will be to hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the easier it will be to confuse our voice with God's voice, the easier it will be to chase after other gods and other lords and other hopes and other faiths. The deeper it go, the, the more we give ourselves to things that we construct, the deeper we go into those things, and the harder it is to come back. True worship, in contrast, is transformative. True worship reproduces the character of God in us because, we, again, we become like what we worship. And all through the Gospels, all through the prophets, all through the letters in the New Testament, you see this thing coming up again and again. In Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is your spiritual act of worship, right? This giving of our mind and our attention and our heart and our affections and our passion to the one true God in worship has a transforming effect. It changes us. It sets us free from sin and reproduces the faithful, holy, loving character of God in our bodies. This is one of Jesus' critiques when he shows up. You know those passages in the Gospels where Jesus says things like, I've come, uh, you know, he speaks in parables, and the disciples go, hey, these parables are crazy confusing. What in the world are you talking about? And then he quotes Isaiah to say, I'm going to speak in parables so they'll look and look and never see, and hear and hear but never understand. And the same thing's going on here. They have senses, but their senses are dull. They have eyes, but the organs don't work properly. He's not saying that his gospel makes them dull. He is saying that his gospel reveals their idolatry. And Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom and calls the people of God to honor the living God. If, they, if his gospel falls on dead ears, it means you have already given yourself to idols. Like this, this kind of motif, this kind of theme, runs all the way through the Scriptures. When Isaiah is called to go and proclaim to the people of God repentance, same thing. It's going to fall on deaf ears. They have eyes, but they don't see because they've worshipped false gods. And the fact that this shows up again and again and again in the Scriptures should tell us this is massively important and we need to be thinking about who we give our energy to and who we give our worship to and am I trusting in 
my control and in the things that I've built and in the work of my hands, or am I trusting in the living God who makes himself known in Jesus and the presence of the Spirit? We want to always be paying attention to our worship. Not just on Sunday mornings, but on Monday mornings and Tuesday afternoons and Thursday evenings. In this moment, am I trusting myself and the work of my hands or am I trusting the living God? Because every moment is either an opportunity for deformation or transformation. Every moment. It's one reason we start our week worshiping together. I don't like those calendars that start the week on Monday. You have one of those? I think you can set your phone up. So sometimes it starts on Monday, sometimes it starts on Sunday. I urge you, start your calendar on Sunday. We start on the Lord's Day. Day one is Jesus' day. And the gathering of the people of God to worship on the Lord's Day sets a tone for the rest of the week. We are worshiping people. Our week is defined and determined by the fact that we gather to declare the glories of the triune God and the power of the triune God and the perfect love of the triune God. And that identity, that governs every day of our week, every moment of our week, because we start the week worshiping Jesus. We are saying we want all the way... This is, the, this is like the weekly tithe, right? You give a portion of your income, you give a portion of your week. Day one, the first percentage, it goes to Jesus. And it says, every, I'm giving you the first part, Jesus, because every day of the week belongs to you. And this is a visible reminder. It is a tactile reminder. It is an embodied declaration that we will worship you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday all the way through Saturday until we come back around to the first day of the next week and we plant the flag one more time. We are the people who worship the triune God revealed in Christ in the Spirit. And that rhythm, that weekly rhythm, keeps us constantly focused on Jesus, not the work of our hands, but the power of His. So that we are not being deformed in losing his character, we are being transformed so that we increasingly embody his character. We become like what we worship. So what is that? What's, so, so what is God like then? Well, in the psalm, we begin with his steadfast love. Steadfast love, your, your translation may put it a little bit differently. It may say loving kindness. It may say uh, steadfast faithfulness. There's no English word that translates the Hebrew idea by itself. Uh, some of you may have done some Old Testament Bible studies and you've learned that the Hebrew word is chesed. Got to clear your throat a little bit. If you want to give it a try later, go ahead, but wear a mask. <laughs> has said is this there's no word in English that gets the full idea it's this it's this this unfailing loyalty from a superior to an inferior this is the way Dr. Oswald puts it for those of you who read his words unfailing dedication and loyalty from a superior to an inferior especially when it's undeserved that says you do not deserve my loyalty but I'm going to give it anyway 
That's his character. He does whatever he pleases, and it pleases him to love his people. Even when they don't meet his expectations. He is loyal. His loyalty doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on his. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. He is faithful. He keeps his promises. The work of our hands, the idols, they have mouths but they cannot speak. They cannot make promises. They have hands but they cannot act. They cannot keep promises. This God rescues his people and he promises to be their God and he promises to be faithful and he promises to redeem them and he promises that when they stray he will bring them back. And he keeps his promises. That's why Paul can say all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Every promise that he has ever made in Jesus of Nazareth, it is yes, 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 yes. He is faithful. His promises never fail. What other aspects of his character are prominent in this passage? His generosity. From the start to the finish, the God praised and glorified in Psalm 115 is a generous God. He is not stingy. He is not greedy. He is not grasping. He is not saying, mine, not yours. Verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. And not just them, He will bless those who fear the Lord, who worship Him, whether they are small or great. He doesn't come to the world and say, hey, what have you got for me? Because let's make a deal. Right? He doesn't come along and say, well, I don't have time for you because you don't have anything to offer me. He doesn't go just to the great. He doesn't go just to the powerful. He doesn't go just to the wealthy. He doesn't say, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, He blesses small and great. He goes to people who have nothing to offer Him and says, I want to pour out the riches of my perfect love on you. I want to make you mine. I want to set my chesed on you. My unfailing loyalty is yours. I love you. I want to bless you. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. I want, to, I want you to be my representatives. That's the heart of their vocation. I want you to bear my name. When you go to the nations, you will carry my reputation and you will carry my character and you will carry my name and, and you will be my witnesses. This is all through the, Hebrew, the Old Testament. And it's His blessing, right? This isn't like prosperity gospel. Hey, believe really hard and I'll shower out blessings from heaven or something. This is God saying, look, I want you to be mine and I want you to be wholly mine and I, my, my, my love for you doesn't depend on your greatness. That's what's going on here. Verse 14, May the Lord give you increase, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, what is being 
declared about God? His generosity. He's not holding back his best from his people. If we had any doubt, if we didn't realize that that's what was going on here, we get to verse 16 and our doubts should be erased. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth, did you catch this when we read through it? The earth he has given to his people. Verse 16. The earth he has given to human beings. Any human beings in the, in the room? None. We got one. One human being on the front row. The rest of you have no idea what's going on. He has given the earth. Anybody know where, like have you been on the earth lately? Right? Making sure we're still here, right? Like when you walk out the door and you look around, the psalm says, God in His generosity has given you everything you see here. And that shouldn't be surprising if you've read the Bible, because in chapter 1, at the beginning, God says, hey, I'm going to make some people, and I'm going to put my image on them, and they're going to be my representatives, and He blesses them. Notice it says He distinctly says in Genesis 1, 27, 28, 29, He blesses them and said, fill the earth and subdue it. Every living thing is yours. The psalmist knows that. He picks up on that. The Creator is overwhelmingly generous. He is stunningly generous. He is remarkably generous. He doesn't say, it's mine you can't have. That bit over there, that's for you. Everything else is mine. It's like, you know, we, we, maybe you've had the opportunity with your kids and you can say, hey, you know, like uh, there's a couple pieces of cake left and you know uh, if one of them cuts it, they're going to cut it uneven. And so what's the solution, right? One cuts and the other gets the first pick. And that way you guarantee a pretty even slice here because if you, you cut it a little bit too big, hoping you'll get that one being kind of greedy, right? Brother or sister's going to get it first. God's not like that. You don't have to let somebody else cut the cake first. He says, let me just cut the big slice and give it to you. Abundant generosity. Over and over and over and over again. And that generosity comes to its fullest and most perfect and most glorious expression in Jesus. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, he's inviting the Corinthians to give financially to a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm not commanding you, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. And his grounding, his call to embody generosity to those in need is grounded in this. Verse 9, you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, though he was exalted in heaven, though he has all things at his disposal, though he was rich, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And Paul is saying that the generosity of God that's on display in Genesis, that is worshipped in the Psalms, that is on display throughout the Scriptures, throughout history, in the life and experience of the people of God, the generosity of God comes to its ultimate climactic revelation in Jesus on the cross. 
in our poverty, in the poverty of our sin and our transgression, when we had said, we will worship the work of our hands, we do not want you to be Lord over us, we do not want you to be God over us, we will call the shots in our lives, we will have our way. In that moment, when we were far from Him, He spread His arms in perfect love and allowed them to be nailed to a cross so that we could be made rich in Him. So that He could share all the wealth of heaven with His people, so that He could share His perfect love with us, so that He could set us free from bondage to darkness and greed and idolatry and chasing after folly and foolish things, so that He could make us whole. That's why we become generous people. We cultivate generous lives when we worship the only generous God. The idols, they're not generous. They are false gods. The one God, the one generous God, the only generous God is revealed in Jesus and He is revealed in Jesus on the cross in the greatest act of generosity in the history of everything. Good Friday. Calvary. Perfect, self-giving love. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. That's what the psalm says. That's what the scriptures say again and again and again. And we have experienced it. We come to worship Him because we have experienced His generosity. We sing His praises as the psalmist does because we experience His generosity. The whole psalm, have you noticed like the whole psalm doesn't say, hey, you know, if you worship God, he's generous and you'll become like him, right? It's just, it's implied. The whole thing is a call to worship. It's he's saying like, trust in the Lord, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, because in doing that, in worshiping him, in setting your eyes on him, in throwing away the works of our own hands, our measly attempts at idolatry that is just is a failure and folly. Throw those things away. Bless the Lord. Trust the Lord. Don't trust in the work of your own hand. Israel, Aaron, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. The whole psalm is an act of worship and the act of worship actually transforms us so that the character of God declared in the worship shows up in our bodies. The character of the God worshipped in this psalm is reproduced in those who worship Him. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? Where the character of God is reproduced in the people of God? In steadfast love? Faithfulness? Generosity? We don't like money sermons. We don't like them because sometimes they feel manipulative. Often they feel manipulative. I have heard horror stories. I heard a story about a guy one time. Uh, he had had some issues and was in the hospital and was worried about paying his medical bills. And like dudes from the church showed up in the hospital and said, you're still going to be able to pay your tithe? Like that's why we don't like money sermons. That man was my grandfather. Thanks be to God. That experience didn't keep him from being deeply in love with Jesus for the rest of his life. Didn't help. That's why I don't like this kind of it feel like just like you don't really care about me, like you just want the cash. 
Another reason, though, we don't like sermons on money is because greed is sometimes an idol. And anytime the Bible goes after our idols, we tend to just close it and read something else. In Colossians 5, or in Colossians 3, 5, and Ephesians 5, 5, Paul lists all these problems and transgressions, and he mentions idolatry and greed and says, like, greed is idolatry. Right? This, I want more. I want to be in control. I want to deter, I want my security. I want to, I want this thing. There's something I'm shooting for and something I'm after. And I want, you know, the stuff, and this is how I get it, and I'm gonna do whatever I have to, if I have to, you know, miss out on things to work the extra hours to get the extra cash to get the thing I want. What are we giving? Who who are to whom are we giving ourselves? So sometimes, like these kind of sermons come along, and we, <laughs> I don't want to hear that one because it reveals our false worship. If that's our experience, let's soften our hearts. Let's not heart. Let's not harden our hearts. We will be tempted to kind of no. I don't want. I don't want to go there. Let's hear Jesus. Saying, come to me. Come to me. Generosity is who God is. Let me say that again. Generosity is who God is. It's who He is in the Garden of Eden. When He makes human beings in His image, takes them into deeply personal relationship and gives them the world. It's who He is at the foot of Mount Sinai when He rescues the Israelites by His powerful hand and carries them on eagles' wings to Himself and makes them His special treasure, generosity. It's who He is in the Psalms when He calls upon His people not to be tempted by the work of their hands, but to trust in Him and experience the fullness of His best. It's who He is in the prophets when the people of God have chased after idols and chased after sin and and determined to be Lord of their own lives. It's who He is in the prophets when He says, come buy milk and bread without price. Come to My table and I will feed you despite the fact that you have wandered from Me. And it's who He is in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the generosity of the triune God. And it's who He is in the Spirit. Who is the presence of the generous, the only generous God in our bodies. And who reproduces the character of the only perfectly generous one in our lives. We allow our eyes to stray from Him, we will become deformed, greedy, self oriented people. If by His grace our eyes are fixed on Jesus in worship, that worship is God's instrument to cultivate His 
generous character in the lives of his people. We cultivate generous lives by worshiping the only generous. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.